Good evening, everyone. This is Brandon Krieger. I'm a cybersecurity account executive, and today's Daily Cyber, episode 261. We actually have Alan Alford, who is going to be our CISO guest. Uh, we're going to be asking a lot of questions when it comes to the CISO role, what's going on in the industry, what he's seeing, what's he seeing through the pandemic. So there's a lot going to happen today. So I hope you guys have you know, your coffee, your tea, you're ready to go, you have all your questions ready. So like I say, grab a coffee, grab your tea, and let's hack at it. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, USADO. USADO is a Canadian-based cybersecurity company that provides 24-7 cybersecurity support and compliance service that align their customers' tolerance for risk, their clients, suppliers, and government contractual mandates. USADO's teams focus on using insights to drive business decisions. There's no need to leave strategies to chance when insights can be used to show what changes need to be made and how to make them. USADO offers multiple services to help companies simplify IT, centralize cybersecurity management, and meet compliance standards. USADO can customize their service to work with your existing IT network and programs. For more information, contact USADO at info at uzado.com or visit their website at www.uzado.com. All right, guys, before I bring Alan on, I just want to give you a little bit of a bio. Uh, with 20 years in information security, Alan Alford has served as a CISO four times in three different industries. Uh, Alford uh, has transferred over from IT career into a product security career, and in the, in the ultimate focus uh, for the, from the two disciplines. Alan has worked in companies from five employees to 50,000 and executes a risk-based approach to security, as well as compliance with NIST, CF, CSF, uh, CISCCS, C, or CSC20, GDRP, ISO 27001, DFARS, and so many others. And, and you guys know all the acronyms and trying to figure that out. All right, Alan has a wealth of knowledge and experience. And I'm looking forward to interviewing Alan today and helping you guys to answer your questions when it comes to breaking the industry and how to implement security programs. So let me bring Alan on. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Not bad, not bad. How's things going through the pandemic? Pandemic's been interesting. I got my uh, second shot uh, two weeks ago, or uh, I guess a week ago Saturday, and okay. uh, it put me down, man. I had basically hardcore flu-like symptoms for two and a half days there off that shot, but uh, but I'm through it. My wife said her shots were actually going to start venturing out of our home now. <laughs> wow. Now, do you have because of the routine? Do you have to go get your shots again? Like, because I, I was hearing that it's like it's you know, first shot little bit of a gap second shot and there might be a third and a fourth yeah so far with the one i took which is moderna they're still saying two i think the second and third shot is or the third and fourth shot is starting to show up with uh i think it was pfizer who was first recommending that we'll have to go look right now i'm supposedly 97 percent immune and best we can tell frankly i caught uh i caught COVID at rsa last year anyway so i believe i've already had it okay. um and uh what that means is when you get your second shot the symptoms are significantly worse not better um, so oh, wow. I was, yeah, I was down hard and that, that, uh, I got it back before they even had tests in Texas to have it. Uh, okay. they told me I was negative for flu, negative for strap, negative for all the other things. And it sure seemed like I had COVID. So they sent me home and said, don't, you know, quarantine and, and hopefully you'll get better. And I did. So, 
Well, I got exposed good. to a friend who had it. He had it, a really bad case and didn't didn't fare so well. I mean, he made it, but but he he was in the hospital. It was really bad, and I was hanging out with him the whole time. So yeah. And then it just kind of spread, right? Yep. Well, I mean, it's good. It's good to hear that you're healthy. How's your family doing? Family's doing good. Wife's got her shots. Uh, kiddos uh, had no COVID scares at school. We've actually got her back in school. Things are well there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. So jumping back into the cybersecurity world, I mean, we've got, you know, we're in Q2 right now. What are you seeing in the industry as a CISO? What am I seeing in the industry? Q2 post-pandemic lifestyle. So I think zero trust became a really big deal over the last, you know, four quarters, right? And I think a lot of shortcuts were made. Um, zero trust is what everybody should have been aspiring to. Not everybody had the budget, the capability, or the, or, the, or the wherewithal to be able to turn around quickly and do zero trust. So I think what happened is a lot of IT teams made compromises. And I think a lot of things happened like, um, let's say, split tunnel VPN got enabled. Um, you know, Soho VPNs used to supplement enterprise architecture. There were a lot of IT choices forced on us by work from home that I think there's a certain price having to be paid by security now coming coming through and cleaning up basically and saying, okay, got it. We're all work from home now, but we still have to be secure as we work from home and let's start overlaying security and possibly replacing some things, upgrading some things, overlaying some things. But I think, I think there's some of that going on right now for sure. Now, go a little bit deeper into zero trust, like because we have people that are starting out in the cybersecurity career to people that are experts. What's your definition of zero trust in this in 2021? Right. So for me, zero trust is a really straightforward proposition. I know it's a buzz phrase. I try to generally actually avoid using it. But what I'll say about zero trust is this. The fundamental philosophy behind it is trust nobody, right? Today, if you have a, a home, uh, not a home office, you have an office office, you're not officing from home, you've got a network, you've got, you know, the fourth floor and the fifth floor, and, and you've got a network and you've got firewalls and you've got email servers and you've got various things on premises, you've got a data center somewhere with a bunch of computers in it, you've got local users that log in with their local Windows account and, and, and get to work. To say that you trust those people just as little as you trust somebody from the outside is basically what zero trust means. And okay. so blow that out to the work from home scenario. And what you're saying is, ideally, I don't trust any one of my workers any more than I trust a stranger on the Internet. And everyone has to go through the same sets of controls and everyone has to be validated and everybody has to be looked at carefully before they're allowed on and allowed to do things. And, of course, the on-premises may be gone and we now may be in an entirely SaaS world where... Your company might use O365 or the G Suite. You might be using Workday for HR, and you might be using Salesforce.com and all these other tools. You can still apply zero trust in that world and actually say, I don't care where you're headed or where you're coming from, you're going to run through the gauntlet, right? Okay. Yeah, and I think that's important to know, especially like uh, I was talking to Dr. Eric Cole a couple, probably about a month, month and a half ago, and he was saying one of the, the theories and philosophies he's talking about right now is that because everyone went to work from home, that that now all your hundred plus employees are now a hundred separate locations, right? Sure. They're not just work from home, they're actual physical office locations. And you have to think of it in that way now because yep. they have VPN, they have, you know, modems that are connected, they have data that's potentially stored, you know, locally on their devices or maybe on a local hard drive. So there's all these different things you have to think about. Who's shoulder surfing? What access do they have? What are they surfing on right. on the internet? Right, like right. all these different things. Who's on their network that has access to their infrastructure? From little Jimmy, little Jane, to yeah. your husband, wife, whatever that may be. And what are they surfing on that network? Because that yeah. network now is an access point to the actual organization. 
That's that's exactly it. I mentioned the perimeter before, the idea of on-premises equipment, right? And and the perimeter used to be the firewall that led into the office, and now you have all your workers on their desktops, and now you have or or notebooks or whatever they're in the office, and they're connecting to a data center with computers that are in the office. And so the perimeter, if you will, the periphery, the edge of all that that you need to protect is basically the building that everybody's in. And now the edge is every single entity in your company at home. So the the Controls that you have to put in place to zero trust a truly work from home workforce like this, it's an absolutely valid point. There's lots of, there's lots of, um, your, your, your edge is now blown out to the size of the world, right? What if one of your coworkers happens to go visit his cousin in South Carolina and do his work from there for the, for the day? You know, South Carolina is now part of your edge, right? And so the fundamental philosophy there is that you have to control what you can control at the edge, which is fundamentally the people and the notebook computers themselves. So you need a really robust endpoint tech stack and you need a really robust identity and access management program so that you're really vetting your people really well. And between those two, you should be good to go. Now you can add other tools like Secure Access Service Edge and some of these other nice tools that can enable, um, you know, more of a BYOD play. People bring in their own devices, but but honestly, I'm not a big BYOD fan. I, I appreciate it. I know shops that have done it. I know there's tech stacks out there that can support it and make it secure. I'm a little more old fashioned on on that one. I'd rather I'd rather see a good strong tech stack that I control on every device coming in. Couple that with a strong identity and access management play, and voila, I've addressed the fact that my my office is now South Carolina. Right. That's awesome. Now, got a question coming in from Net Fraser. Uh, as a CISO working from home. How was the upper management outlook on uh, permanently shifting positions full time to work from home? Um, I have personally, you know, my last organization went went full time from home and and reduced office space, and you know, it was obvious that that they were in it for the long haul. Uh, the current organization is 100% work from home. Um, I don't see any issues with it. I think from a high level, you know, uh, overview of the you know being the security, the executive over security. I don't have any specific concerns or worries about it. I'm fine with my team being virtualized. I'm fine with uh, having a proper tech stack in place so that my whole company can be, you know, remote. I said virtualized. I meant remote. I don't know where that word came from. Um, <laughs> virtual virtual staff. That's the next. That's the next thing coming, man. Right. Um, so having all that be, you know, being said, I'm fine with it from a security perspective, executive perspective. I've got no beef with it at all. Now, as an executive executive and not a security executive, are there concerns? Sure. There's always that concern that Timmy is napping and 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 Jane is actually uh, doing something else altogether. And, you know, you hear the horror stories of the employee who's not even working for the company, but actually has a second job and is just taking in two paychecks. And, you know, there's there's horror stories that abound. And, and obviously, there's a great amount of trust of personnel that has to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's It's totally possible as an executive to build and create a culture of trust a culture of respect, um, and and still have that culture be one where we know everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, working from home. Um, right. There's a certain amount of accountability that can be there. Um, you don't have to be draconian about it at all. Um, I think I think work from home gives us new flexibilities that we didn't have before. I mean, example: yesterday afternoon, I ran to the vet real quick for 30 minutes and got rabies tags for my dog. You know, like. Right. Um, you know, just a quick run. But but I also know that my boss knows I was up early and working before the workday and also probably checking emails that night and whatever else it might be. I, I would argue that truly the work from home scenario, in my experience and the experience of those I'm close to, seems to have resulted in people working more, not less. Um, and it's because it's really hard to draw that boundary line and say, I am at home now, right? Right. 
So that's what I was going to ask you that. I'm going to, I actually have two questions for myself personally. So are you finding right now that, you know, cause before you used to have water cooler talk, right? You used yep. to get up from your, your desk, you know, Jane, John, Lee would walk by and you kind of chit chat. You'd take a little bit of a break. You'd go to the water cooler, the lunchroom, whatever that may be. And you talk, but now you're at home, right? There is not, it's back to back meetings and you get up in the morning you sit at your office, whatever that means, your kitchen table to maybe a, an office you've set at home, and now you keep working. Right, right. So there's a couple of solutions to that that I've run into, and a couple of these, and I, I can't claim credit for any of them. These are all ones I've stolen and borrowed from other people. So one is with your team, you create a Zoom meeting in the morning that has everybody in it that's just sort of minimized and on the desktop, right? Right. Uh, just, just tuck it down in the corner somewhere and ignore it and leave it until you need it. You pop up. And basically, it's like a live chat room sort of approach towards video. It's not the same conference that they're having in their actual daily meetings. And obviously, you mute it while you're having your daily meetings. But the idea is, if you're not in meetings, you've kind of got this open forum arena sort of thing where you can get together with people and have casual chat, throw ideas over the fence, uh, share a screen or two, have a quick com you know, chat over coffee. Just to have the team able to be in touch with each other sort of real time and live throughout the day in an open way that no one's obligated or expected, but you can sort of pop in and out throughout the day and everybody's there doing the same and you get some of that sort of that water cooler talk, right? That's that's one idea. And then the other idea is really going out of your way to make sure you schedule events and things. Like, you know, my last company, we had a once a month, everybody wore their masks and, and sat pretty far from one another, but we'd still meet up for a lunch somewhere on occasion. Um, we had scheduled Zoom events that were fun events that weren't just work events. Um, right now, the vendors are trying really, really hard to, to come up with new and clever ways to replace the taking you to a steak lunch kind of thing, right? And so um, there's people doing, you know, whiskey tastings and there's people doing coffee tastings and there's, you know, interactive cheese slicing and whatever all these crazy things are that's going on. Don't be afraid as a leader to book your team for some of that stuff, right? Take advantage of it and say, hey, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring three of my team. We're all going to hang out and slice cheese together for, you know, a Friday afternoon, you know, take an hour off and do that. So so take advantage of those things as well. Okay. Now, putting on the, the CISO hat, with everything that's changing on, are you signing, like, because I know, like, the C-level, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of it's looking at revenues, looking at kind of how to be more cost savings for the environment in the sense of, the infrastructure, the operations costs, capital X costs, like all that. Are you finding the work from home now? People are looking at letting go, like their different locations, because now they don't need the lease. They don't need that property. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can name a few companies right off the top of my head where um, building was originally 10 floors. They sent everybody home, and now they've reduced it down to one floor. Or they got rid of three entire buildings, and they've kept one building, or whatever it might be. There's plenty of organizations that have decided to embrace work from home, get rid of the commercial real estate. I would not want to be in commercial real estate right now because I don't, uh, I haven't been tracking the prices, but I'm sure they're just plummeting. Even now with the return, we're starting to see some businesses returning. I still think that more businesses rather than fewer actually decided to cut back on commercial real estate and allow some degree of, of permanent work from home. Even if they're setting up hoteling or something like that, you're still jettisoning some permanent real estate, right? Right. And I think that I think that's that's part of it. There is a definite cost savings there. I think I think the fear of work from home was in every executive's mind before COVID. 
right? right? And then COVID hit, and whether we wanted it or not, guess what? We got it. And everybody started to look at it and realize it's not so bad. Work is still getting done. Meetings are still happening. Progress is still being made. And then you start eyeing that cost of that empty building over there, and you think, you know, let's get rid of that lease. So, right. Yeah, perfect. Now, I've got another question for you. Uh, for someone working to get into the cybersecurity position, uh, what's your advice to stand out from the rest of the applicants? Oh, that's a great question. So um, I'm going to recommend a friend's podcast. I'm going to recommend a show. It's mm -hmm. called Breaking Into Cybersecurity. And it's hosted by Chris Foulon and uh, Renee Small. And it's done live on LinkedIn and some other places too. You can go find it, Breaking Into Cybersecurity. They've got a million and one tips for exactly this thing. I, I, I got to admit, I'm a CISO. I've been in the game for, you know, pushing 30 years now. Um, how I got in way back when is not how people get in today. Um, so, so I don't have the best breaking in advice. What I can say is as a hiring manager, what do I look for? Um, if you're truly new and truly breaking in, you're competing with other people that may already have a year or two under their belt. So it's important to do a couple of things. Um, one is get some certifications of some sort. So you've got a little bit of alphabet soup after your name that proves you've, you've passed some tests and, and learned some things. The second is get as much experience as you can, even if you don't have the experience. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but what I mean by that is intern, volunteer, uh, it's amazing how many churches and synagogues and mosques and all these things out there have some basic uh, computing stuff going on, Wi-Fi networks and whatever, and they need somebody to volunteer to run it and secure it and do that. Teach yourself, learn that, do that. And then that brings me to the third bullet, which is um, get out there and blog, get out there and post on LinkedIn, get out there and post on Twitter. Now, if you're the guy without experience and you're posting, obviously you're, you're saying to yourself, what do I have to post about? And the answer is whatever you've learned. Teach yourself. Get online. Get into something crazy. Like I'm going to learn how CSS and HTML5 work together. And you just set that task for yourself. And you go learn and research and do a bunch of stuff. And by the time you've mastered a few things and built a few web pages, write a blog post. Here's what I learned and here's what I did. And the more of that kind of content you can generate to show, hey, I'm, I'm a self-learner. Look at me. I have learned. Look at the knowledge I've gained. Uh, the certifications, to a certain extent, show the same. Obviously, college degrees, master's degrees, and all this kind of thing can help as well. Just basically adding to the pile of, I'm a self-learner. I've actually already learned some things. And look at the experience I've managed to gather, even without being able to get this job that I want you know, to, to break in. Now, I got a question for that. because. A lot of guys, a lot of these guys that are in our network right now, Discord as well as watching this, are breaking into the industry. And mm -hmm. one of the terms I'm sure you're aware of is the imposter syndrome. Oh, Coming yeah. out and saying, okay, yeah, I know this, yep. but I'm still a student. Like for me, I've got the CISSP book behind me, and I'm going through and studying that, and, and I read my exam on uh, May 30th. But again, you know, some people go out and say, oh, well, how do I say I know it when I don't know it, right? I'm learning right. it, right? Right, right. And you know, what, what's your thoughts around that? So I'll tell you this. First of all, let me let me give a little example. So we're talking about breaking into the field and you're asking a CISO and CTO, what what is that like and what is imposter syndrome like for breaking into the field? Let me tell you this story. I was in a room. It was a Slack, Slack room, Slack channel with about 20 other CISOs. And the question was asked, who here suffers from imposter syndrome? Every single one of us raised our hands. Okay. So imposter syndrome never goes away. You should always, if you are a self-aware human being, be aware of what you don't know. You should always be looking at the challenges in front of you and recognizing, gee, if I only had this skill and that skill and that skill, this would be an easier challenge to overcome. You should always be aware of what you're lacking, and you shouldn't let that stop you ever. Um, 
have imposter syndrome, go for it. Let it roll over you and through you and, and recognize it as your friend who helps motivate you. And don't let it be anything else other than a source of motivation. Don't be afraid to, to stop. You know, like I said in my earlier example, even if all you've learned is one example of one web page of HTML5 and CSS, you've learned it. You've taken the time, you've spent the time, you've learned this one thing. I can guarantee you if you throw it out there to the universe, somebody else hasn't learned it yet. And you may have figured out a trick on your own and add that little trick to what you gathered from the three or four places you went to learn it. And now you're the first person to have put it all in one place and you're the first person to have added that one trick. You can overcome any amount of imposter syndrome just by simply rolling up your sleeves, acknowledging, hey, I don't know these things, so I'm going to know these things and diving in. That's awesome. So now, guys, everyone that's watching, please get your questions in here. And we've got Alan to answer any of your questions, again, about the, the industry, the career, whatever you want to know. Please ask these questions now. Got a comment here uh, from BSEC. He goes, 100%. Many people are now working longer. Uh, going back to your comment that you said about you know people working longer at home. Uh, I've got a question here. What is a problem you see uh, every day that ought to have been solved by now? So as a oh. CISO, with many years' experience, you're kind of like, really? Still? Um, I uh, Identify. Uh, if you look at the NIST CSF, the cybersecurity uh, cyber framework, and you go through the five phases. First phase is identify. If you look at the CIS CSC20, the first couple of aspects of it are identify, right? Asset management, identify your assets and manage your assets, right? So every good framework starts with identify. And identify sounds really simple. What hardware do I have? What software do I have? What data do I have, right? Start with that. Start with identifying what the heck your, your problem areas and your targets for the bad guys even are. And here I am 30 years later, and we still suck at identify. Okay. I don't know anyone who's doing it well. There's a million and one solutions out there that'll help automate it and, and get you going well. Um, I don't, I don't want to name vendor names, but there's one solution uh, that I found recently that, that even won an RSA sandbox that is, that is finally introducing some good innovation and technology there for identifying your hardware assets, for example. That's starting to get under control. People have CMDBs. People have multiple agents and things like um, you can do secure management um, software for your endpoints that can actually also you know, monitor and, and, and observe and state you know, what, the, what the state of the box is and report that into a dynamic CMDB. You can do app scanning and other layers and sims and things. You can, you've got, you can triangulate. There's a lot of things you can do to observe your shop using different tools that may reside as agents, may reside as, you know, sort of network sniffing type things that are agentless. And all of those can triangulate and can combine and can feed your configuration management database and basically say, here we are, here's what we have. Here's the most accurate and real-time list of all the assets in the shop. Um, even with all of that tooling and all of those things, it's still going to be an incomplete list and it's still going to be an outdated list pretty much any time you touch it, right? We, we still haven't solved the identify problem. Wow. That's good. Thank you so much. Now, uh, next question we have here. Has there been a way that you have helped uh, your team or self-defeat the imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. Um, with my team, here's what I do. I actually uh, rotate responsibilities in my team, even for the junior members of the team, and deliberately pick roles of, you know, tasks and roles that need to be done in the, in the coordination and organization of the team in its daily life and choose ones that are just slightly beyond somebody's skill set and deliberately give them that. Say, okay, you, Mr. Intern, who's just walked in the door and has never done this before, you're now in charge of doing this one thing, right? You're on your own. You've got help from the others if you need it, but I'm looking to you to be the accountable guy. I'm not going to have you ride shotgun and the other guy's accountable. You're going to be accountable. That's, that's for the intern. For the manager, I'm going to challenge you to start doing the kinds of things the director does. 
uh, for the director. I'm going to challenge you to do the things that a vice president does. And always have a good, solid feeling and foundation of where your team is at and where you are at as an individual. And always be pushing those boundaries. If you are not at least once a day doing something that takes you out of your comfort zone, you're never going to overcome your imposter syndrome. You have to do something every day that makes you uncomfortable. And in, in that productive and good way, right? I mean, not, you know, don't just go randomly be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable for a reason. And right. that reason should always be to further yourself, challenge yourself, better yourself, and push your limits and, and gain and gather some new skill, some new capability. And the odds are you're going to first go out there and you're going to be horrible at it. It's just going to happen. That's okay. Keep at it. Keep trying. Keep challenging yourself. Do it once a day. I guarantee you three months from now, you'll feel comfortable with things that used to make you uncomfortable. It's, it's one of those cliches, right? Get, get, uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Yeah. You always hear that. And it's good. I mean, you hear that so many times where people are kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little scared. I'm, yeah. you know, and you're saying, which I totally agree is just, yeah, go for it. And you're going to fail, fail successfully, fail, yep. you know, and have fun with it and just know you're going to, then it's okay. In, in the world of psychology, that's actually called exposure therapy. Um, okay. and, and I've personally leveraged that tool, uh, in my own life to overcome phobias, right? Like, like very deliberately facing my phobia, doing the thing I'm deathly afraid of forcing myself to do it over and over and over and over and over until I was no longer afraid of it, kept at it and got to where it was actually something, an enjoyable experience. And, and I will share what that phobia is public speaking. Really? I used to be terrified of it. I now have a podcast. I'm now on stages, giving keynotes all the time. Um, here I am live on video right now. I used to be terrified of public speaking. And the way I overcame it was by forcing myself to do it little bits at a time, little bits at a time, and never letting up and never giving up. And eventually I overcame that fear. Wow. Good for you. Uh, one of the thing, funny things I heard about public speaking was like one of the top, it's the, one of the top five fears, right, that pe most people go through. Mm -hmm. right? And they were saying to, to relate it, if you're doing a eulogy, the guys that are scared, they'd rather be in the ground than actually giving the eulogy. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, that's kind of funny. But you think about it when you're on stage, like you're in a panic. So you'd rather be like not yep. there, right? right? So when right. someone told me that, I, I laughed at that. Oh, you know, that was kind of funny. But, but you think about it, it's true. Like when someone's giving a eulogy in front of people, they'd rather not do it. They'd rather be the person in the crowd that doesn't have to do it. That's hysterical. Uh, so a couple more questions here. Oh, we got lots coming in. Thanks, guys. Keep them coming. Uh, what do you think of having a BSO for communication between CISO? um board executives kind of the senior level uh, now you're familiar with the b yep. the BSO or the BI absolutely I've, I've been a BSO, uh and nice. one of my one of my favorite folks to chat with in cyber is a BSO. um patrick benoit just he was on my podcast just i don't know last i think i think last week we recorded a show together he's a BSO, and i used to be one as well um every organization uses their BSOs a little bit differently but for me the b stands for business unit is is the origins of it not business but business unit is really kind of where it came from even though it stands for business work with me here and the yeah. fundamental idea is in a large enough organization the CISO can't be everywhere you need somebody who's got the executive gravitas somebody who understands the security really well who can align themselves with a unit of the business maybe it's a geography maybe it's a region maybe it's a true business unit you know a company that manufactures cars but also manufactures elevators and somebody runs the elevator business unit somebody runs the car business unit break right. it up however the business is broken up dedicate that person to that business unit 
and have them be the CISO for all intents and purposes to that business unit and more importantly, from that business unit. The whole idea of having BISOs in my mind is that the CISO A can't be everywhere and B will never be able to intimately learn the, the, the level of the business that needs to be learned that, that a group of BISOs can collectively do way better than a CISO could ever do it. Um, yeah. Now, what else can a BISO do? There's other roles. Uh, my friend Patrick, I mentioned, he is... Um, He's very customer facing as a BSO. I've also seen BSO roles that were basically nothing more than a deputy CISO. And I've also seen BSO roles that were very much all targeted externally. Uh, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's it's a generic term that gets used to describe a few different roles. But in terms of integrating with the business, interfacing with the business, and being the bridge between security and the business, absolutely, if the organization is large enough, you have to have BSOs. So now with the BSOs in, in the organizational structure, are they reporting to the CISO or C-level? Yep. Yep, they generally report directly into the CISO. Okay, and now what? What? Because I'm a little bit familiar. I was kind of doing some research when someone asked the other day, and I noticed that there's not much training for it to become this B B CISO role. There's not. There's not. There's not a whole lot of training for CISO either, for that matter, or for deputy CISO or for chief of staff for a CISO. Right? If you look at all the critical roles that are that are in any typical CISO organization, and again, I've worked as you mentioned. I've worked. I'm currently at a 15 man shop. I've been in a five man shop. I've been in a 50,000 man shop. Um, the idea that you're going to have these different types of roles ultimately, no matter the size or shape, they're going to fall into the basic camps. If you got the CISO, him or herself. You've got the chief of staff. You've got the deputy CISO potentially. You've got the BISOs potentially. And the chief of staff is always, I should say, a potentially as well because you have to be a certain size and type of team to even have that role. And all of those roles collectively equal what it takes to get done at an executive level to make security happen for a bigger organization. And every one of those roles, I've seen the people enter them from pretty much every weird, random background, sidestepping in, backwards walking in. Um, very few people rise through the ranks in a path and pattern that take them to be so that take them to deputy CISO, that take them to chief of staff for the CISO, that take them to CISO. Uh, I don't know that any origin story is even really the same other than you can start as kind of an auditor level in GRC, work your way through the GRC ranks and eventually hop into one of those roles that way. Uh, other people, I guess, you know, from the technical side come in, same thing. Maybe you're an engineer, you become an architect, potentially you become a BSO after that. But there is no consistent story. Everyone I've met in those roles always has a different origin story. Some people started in IT. Some people did a complete lateral from a whole other department that had nothing to do with security. I've, I've heard every story under the sun. Wow. Now, with, with that role, B, BCSO, CISO role, now you always hear kind of the story that it's not a technical role, right? It's really kind of a business. What are some skill sets that you would need to really be a good BCSO, CISO? Okay. So let's start with that origin story I just gave. There's the GRC camp and there's the technical camp. Those are right. generally the two backgrounds that, that lead towards a leadership role in security. Those are generally the two. And again, I've seen a million other stories, but let's assume that's where the bulk of them come from is one of those two camps. I personally grew up in the technical ranks um, and later came to own GRC and run it and respect it. But I started as a technical person. My security chops were, you know, actually writing the firewall rules and stopping the bad guys, you know, where, you know, in the machine. Um, systems administration and blah, 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 and eventually manager of IT and then security focus and on and on and on. So I would argue that a good CISO, by the time you've reached the CISO level, has to be first and foremost a business person, period. That has to be the number one skill is business itself. You have to be able and willing to sit down with your peers 
to, to know the basics of how a business operates, how to read a 10K if you're a publicly traded company, how to sit down with a CFO and go over general ledger and go over P&L and, and go over some of the basic stuff there, how to sit down with a CMO and understand how the business markets itself and what marketing means both internally and externally, how to sit down with the chief revenue officer and understand how sales works. You have to be a business person operating with your fellow peers who are also business people all collectively leading the company from a business perspective and a unified perspective. You must reach that point to be a good CISO. Now, how do you get there? Again, GRC camp and technical camp seem to be the, 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 the most popular two. I personally prefer technical camp, quite honestly. And the reason for that is a CISO ultimately is going to be over both a GRC and a technical effort. GRC is relatively easy enough to onboard and pick up over time. The technical skills, less so. And so I always like to see my leadership ranks in the security organization come more from the technical side than the GRC side for certain roles anyway. Other times I'm going to insist that somebody came from the GRC side. So, you know, to be clear, and again, I love GRC. It's I have more GRC focus than technical focus these days anyway, despite what I'm telling you. So, so it's a matter of learn it through the ranks, grow through it, learn what you can. And eventually at some point, you're going to have to make that transition to becoming a business person, whether you come up the GRC ranks or the technical ranks, at some point, you've really got to start embracing business. And the way you do that is when you hit the director level, start peering, start working more with folks, you know, directors around the organization from other departments, work with them as much as you work with your own team, right? By the time you're a director, you should be doing, you know, there's always the, the model I see is up, out, and down, right? Yeah. And by the time you make director, you should be doing as much out and up as you're doing down, maybe even more out than anything, because the directors are ideally sort of the sergeants in the army. They're the ones that know each other, get things done. The supply sergeant knows the guy in the field and they have a rapport and they understand what needs to happen to really make the army successful. That's the directors in a corporation. And so as soon as you hit director level, start focusing on out, start learning the business that way. And by the time you reach CISO, you should have gotten very good at that as well, regardless of your origin story. Wow. Okay. Now it's good to know because I mean, uh, doing the CISSP, we have a CISSP uh, study group that we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. A lot of we try to do business focus, not the, mm -hmm. the technical focus. And I think it's because a lot of the technical guys don't know business, the business side. Mm -hmm. right? And as you know, like you, you, I mean, you made that comment because you're you're technical. Like you're dealing with the technology, you're doing manufacturers, you're dealing with you know any type of the te technology and solutions and how it implements and how it protects. But then how does that work for the business? Yep. What's the business requirement? What's the compliance need? What's kind of all that? Yep. A lot of times you don't think that way because yep. it's a top-right gardener. It's one of the best. It's SOAR. Yeah. It's next generation. It's AI yep. technology. It's machine learning. It's all this great yep. stuff. But, you know, how does that help the business? Right. You, you, you can be the most technical CISO in the world and totally understand the inner workings and totally understand all the details of what your tech stack is and why it is and have this completely strong security foundation, go upstairs and try to sell it and completely fall on your face because you speak in security terms, because you speak in technical terms, because you don't speak in business terms. You have to understand how you relate to the top line and the bottom line with every decision you make. You have to understand what risks are, how you're addressing those risks and how the business, everybody else in the business is going to see those risks and articulate those risks because it's, it's not even just enough to say, well, well, you know, the bad guys are going to get in and we're going to reduce the quantity of bad guys that get in by deploying this one thing. Okay, so what does that mean the bad guys are going to get in? Well, they're going to steal some data. What data? Well, they're going to steal this data over here. Well, why does that matter? 
well, they're going to steal this data over here, and that matters because this data is uh, sensitive information about employees, and if it gets stolen, we could get sued. And Ah, okay, so there's a financial cost associated with the bad thing that you're trying to prevent happening. What is that financial cost, Mr. C? So, oh, well, uh, you know, I mean, it could be, uh, you know, and you have to be able to articulate. This is the risk. This is why it matters to the business. This is what happens if we don't do anything. This is what it'll cost to do a little something. This is what it'll cost to do a lot something. And here's how a little and a lot, respectively, will influence that risk and change it and shape it. And you have to have the conversation at that level. You can be the best technologist in the world and utterly fail as a CISO. Wow. Thank, thank you so much, Alan. Uh, next question we got here. Uh, what are you thinking about the Microsoft's new policy to avoid 60 days password change for end users? Yep. So I'm with the, the, the new... NIST recommendations. Um, and by new, I mean they've been out for, geez, three, four, five years maybe even now. I think it's been about four years. NIST basically did a study, came back and said these complex passwords that we've all been using where you substitute, you know, E for three and zero for O and dollar sign for S and all this nonsense. Um, all we've achieved is two things. Number one, passwords that are difficult for humans to remember, but that are still ultimately passwords that are easy for machines to guess. Because right. you don't have a super long password. You've got a super complex password, but it's still relatively short. Machines don't care about the complexity, right? So what we have to do is we have to blow that model out of the water. And we have to say, come up with something that a human can remember that works really well, that is long, such that a machine is going to struggle to get through it, even though it's simple and doesn't have all the crazy characters. And then the second piece of the NIST guidance is don't go changing your passwords every X days. Only change them when you know you've had a compromise and bolster them with MFA or 2FA, and you've got a lock. You don't need to change passwords hardly at all in that scenario. And back to the first piece of this, there's a great XKCD cartoon that explains this phenomenon and even walks you through the math of, of why, uh, why it's easier for the machines versus the humans to do whatever it might be with the choices. And they give you an example of four random words you smack together and create a fake sentence that makes no sense, but it's easy to remember. And their example was correct horse battery staple. Right. Slap those four words together. Relatively easy to remember. I remember to correct horse battery staple. Makes no sense, but it's a good long passphrase. You're good to go. Wow. Now, with the NIST framework, and correct me if I'm wrong, aren't they starting on to promote that next level of true passwordless decentralized authentication? Mm-hmm. Right, which the, is not yeah, we're, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. I don't know that NIST has actually spoken to that in any of their current frameworks. I may be wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I've got uh, friends who are way deeper NIST heads than I am. Um, but the current guidance and the current recommendation is not passwordless yet. Uh, right. That's coming right now. Uh, complex pass, you know, non-complex pass phrases um, mixed with um, the rotation policy I described, mixed with MFA or 2FA. That seems to be about the cutting edge today. And obviously, passwordless makes a lot of sense. Getting past it is is probably the best option for all of us. But I don't know how many of the standards are actually driving to that yet. Yeah, because I was looking at one duo and then all these different ones are now doing because you have your, your, you know, what you are, what you have, or what you yep. what you know, kind of, yep. you know, multi-factor authentication. They're using that now because now the password's actually stored on your phone in the sense of it's now in a centralized database like Active Directory, LDAP, or anything yep. like that. Yep. Now it's, you know, on your phone, encrypted. So now they'd have to actually actually hack the individual versus... Yep you know, go into the database and then pull the database, right? Exactly. They've already shown with quantum computing that the time it takes to crunch a, a stored password, even in its encrypted format, right? Like to, if you get a hold of that Etsy shadow file and, and crunch the passwords in their encrypted format, quantum computing has shown that that can be done way more quickly than used to be the case. 
Yeah, and I so, think right now with yeah. the, with China coming out with their quantum computers and now they're more accessible, I think I mean, you know, I'm feeling that in the next year or two, this is going to be start to be more of a concern. Yep, exactly, exactly. So passwordless is definitely the next the next wave. Awesome, uh, man. It's a got a comment here, man. That's great leader right, uh, right there. Ro uh, rotating responsibilities makes them accountable and leaning. Uh, and sorry, accountable and learning. Uh, next question was, uh, what are things that are are an absolute disqual for you in an app an application? So, if you see an application, what's something that you see that's like, yeah, they this is one that goes to the bottom of the pile. Oh, that's a good. That's a really good question. Um, so, AppSec, um, what are the what are the big failings that are going to get to me? Um, now, do they get to that point? Like. You know, and that's, do you have like checks and balances as you go through your your hundred resumes, two hundred resumes? Is someone kind of filtering through? Do you use an application? That yeah, kind of so I, I don't. I personally refuse to use any of the apps. There's too much risk that you're going to drop something on the floor you shouldn't have dropped on the floor. So what are the no-nos? What are the things that are going to be red flags that I'm absolutely going to toss in the trash? Um, I've got far fewer red flags than I used to. I'll say that. Um, if you go look me up on LinkedIn and look at my career, I've had several short stints in a row. Um, and that used to be a big fat no-no. Never, never, never have short stints in a row. I've had four, frankly. Um, and I'm no longer too concerned about that. What I am concerned about is gaps, right? Every one of mine, like a week later, there was a different job. You know, write your own story there. You can figure that out. Big gaps that are missing is still a red flag for me. Just to, like, where the heck was this person? And that gap could be explained by anything. I mean, I've seen resumes where it's like, took a, took six months off to take care of my sick mom. Okay, that makes perfect sense. But just right. simply having that six-month void leaves one wondering what, what the negative story might be. Um, Should you put that on your resume? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you've, if you've got a six-month that you've done something meaningful and real in the world, and I would argue taking care of six family members counts as something meaningful and real in the world, absolutely put that on the resume. You know, what were you doing? I was, I was going to school those six months and I was, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so, so unexplained gaps are always a red flag that are going to cause me to, you know, put you on the maybe not pile. I'm, I'm probably going to actually ask you the question and rather than just reject it and throw it in the trash completely. Uh, the other one for me is the super long resumes. I got a resume from a guy a couple of years ago. I still remember it to this day. It was literally 31 pages. <laughs> wow. Okay. The guy was a, he was a contract developer, really good, really skilled at his game, obviously knew his business and was one of these folks that just chose to live in an RV and travel the country and just pick up different jobs here and there. And he felt the need to list every single one of those jobs. Um, I just was like, I'm not even, if, if this is how you communicate with me, I don't even want to know how you communicate with the rest of my company, with anybody else I might need you to give a presentation to like, yeah, you might be the best developer in the world. That one did go in the trash can simply because of the resume length. I, I, I couldn't imagine that person able to give me a short and concise description of anything in any business context with a 31-page resume as, as his short and concise explanation of himself, right? Um, and that's probably the only two red flags I can really think of that I've, that I've had recently. Okay, so just to recap, so everyone's watching this, like if you have gaps in your, in your resume, fill them, right? Yeah. If it's going to school, self-studying, the pandemic, got laid right. off from the pandemic, Right. Just put it in there and say, look. And, and, what, and what did you do during that? Like, let's say that's the case. Let's say that's actually the case. I got laid off because of the pandemic and I went six months and, and now I'm applying for a new job and I haven't had a job in six months. All this stuff we talked about at the beginning of the show where you're, where you're, you're teaching yourself and you're learning and you're growing and you're pushing your boundaries and you're getting out of your comfort zones and you're, and you're educating yourself. 
man, fill that six months with that stuff. What have I done? I went and got a CEH cert and I went and got a whatever book and I've learned how to develop HTML and I'm studying program management. And I mean, just whatever it might be, fill that gap with the stuff that you've been doing to actively keep yourself fresh and keep pushing yourself and, and keep improving your game even when you're not working. Awesome. I mean, that, I think that's great advice, especially for people that are transitioning, people are trying to break in the career, as well as, like you said, like the pandemic, as you know, I'm sure you heard, Alan, and I've heard it as well. There's some people that just have been laid off, companies downsizing, and yep. you know it's just the the after effect of the the pandemic. So, yep. you know, as you're going through your transition period, yeah, take a little bit of break, get emotional grounding. You know, sometimes it's, it's frustrating. You know, have to figure it out, but then fill that gap in what you're working on, what you're doing in projects, you know, programming, learning, studying, whatever that may be, because yep. people like yourself are looking and going, okay, you know, they've they've done something meaningful. It is amazing how much free stuff is out there that you can focus on, ingest, and get better at what you do in the cyber game. Uh, and it's all completely free. There's tons of resources out there. There's there's name brand schools that have given away their curriculum for free. Right. There's you know there's uh, there's organizations who who house videos on you know, like if you want to do CISSP prep for example. There's a place you can go to that has probably five different people presenting their video series on how to how to pass CISSP, and it's basically boot camps in a box, completely free. All that stuff's out there. If you've ever got the downtime, don't waste it. Right, spend it on something meaningful. Invest in yourself. Oh, exactly. No, I totally agree. Uh, next question we have here: When breaking into the field, it, it is is it the like is it most uh, I'm trying to read this. Is it like most jobs where you get some training and shadowing, or are you expected to operate off the bat? So, to clarify that, he's, I think he's asking, or they're asking, you know, like most jobs, do you get some training when you come in, or are you yep. supposed to get the ground running? Yep. So, I, I think it's a mix of both. And, and I don't know that cyber is any different from any other career in that regard either. There's a certain amount of hit the ground running that pretty much everybody does these days. Simply because, you know, especially to your point in the COVID economy, belts are tight right now. Teams are smaller than the managers would like them to be. Every team is a little bit tinier than, than what folks would prefer they were. Corners have been cut and everybody's running pretty lean right now. And so if that's what you're doing, then obviously every new employee hitting the ground running is better for the manager than any employee who's not hitting the ground running. So there's going to be a certain amount of desire, if you will, that everybody hits the ground running. Now let's, let's couple that with the reality of the situation. Most jobs, most of the time, you can't just hit the ground running. You need some stuff. So in my team, for example, I've got an intern uh, and I've got two brand new hires on my team right now. Uh, the brand new hires, literally one of them has been with me two weeks. One of them has been with me one week and the intern, um, was before I got the team, but we just re-upped him, right? Uh, I've got every one of these guys working together, coaching each other and pulling each other up. I've given them tasks and projects, and I've asked uh, back to my earlier thing about get people out of their comfort zone. One of you new guys is going to lead this project, but I want all three of you to contribute to this project. And you got the expertise of the senior guy on the staff if you need to tap his brain, but you guys are going to run this one with, with him as a resource, not the other way around. Wow. Um, and, and again, they'll do it. They'll pull it off and they'll, they'll come out of it feeling stronger and more confident. I'll come out of it with the good results that I needed. Everybody wins. Right. Now, what if they don't? And, and let's kind of look at all managers have this where someone just doesn't deliver. Mm -hmm. What do you do in those cases? First thing I do is coach and mentor. The second thing I do is have them walk through the experience themselves with me as kind of riding shotgun and asking the questions. Why didn't it go well? What did you do or not do? What were you aware of and not aware of? What are you aware of now that it's all done that you're looking back in hindsight and going, oh, man, I could have, I should have. 
Um, I, I walk people through those moments and work with them together to get a deeper understanding and a better understanding now of what maybe wasn't understood then. And I give people chances and I do this a few times. And if I've done this three, four, five, six times and it doesn't feel like I'm getting any traction, now I'm going to worry. But the odds are with almost anybody that I've ever worked with in any team, any context, any, any situation I've been in, two or three times is, is what's needed at most because usually it boils down to a few things. One of them, again, we've talked about already is confidence. Mm-hmm. The other one is just general field knowledge. You usually don't have as much knowledge as, as you want or need to, to do the thing. But that means what we're really saying is where do you go to get knowledge? Do you know how to get knowledge? I'm not expecting you to have it already in your head. I'm expecting you to know where to go get it when you need it, right? So the first one is confidence. The second one is how and where to get knowledge. And then the third one is is usually just uh, self-awareness and self-organization. And usually one of those three areas, we've all got room we can improve. Every one of us can improve in those three areas. I can guarantee you no matter who you are or how far along you are in your journey, we can all improve in those three areas. And usually it just takes a boss sitting down with you and walking through those three areas with you to say, you know what, let's let's focus on this one here. That seems to be your challenge area. Let's work on that together. That's awesome. Yeah, now do you give do you give them resources? Like say, for example, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, but you don't know what you don't know kind of scenario. Right. Have you kind of for your team, do you give them resources to say kind of like, you know what, here's a book, here's a yep. course, you know what, try to kind of brush up on this. Here's probably. Absolutely. I'm a huge proponent of training um, and certifications and all that good stuff. I, as far as I'm concerned, if you're on my team and you you are interested in a training opportunity, you're interested in a um learning opportunity. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go to bat. I'm going to fight and try to get the budget to make that happen. Um, and I'm going to do that. So that's, that's one right there is I'm a huge believer in training and certifications because if people are going to self-pace and, and I always make it a reward system too, right? So I'll, I will pay for your certification if you pass it. Okay. That's the challenge I always give my guys, go get whatever certification you want you got to pass it to get paid for it. If you, if you take the time to study and buy the book and do all the work and don't pass, I'm not going to reimburse you for that one, but I'll, you know, the second time, the third time, you know, when you finally get it, that'll be the one I pay for. Um, put a little incentive in there too, but yes, I love doing that. And then the other thing is, is peering and resourcing and mentoring, right? I, I, the example I gave a moment ago, I got a senior guy on the team who knows this stuff really well. And I got two brand new guys and an intern. Um, I've got them all sharing with each other as peers, but I've also got them learning from the senior resources as much as possible without, of course, overloading him. I'm putting myself in that role as well, teaching them what I can um, and sort of load balancing all that knowledge and, and sharing and and to encourage in the group sessions and the team meetings when, when everybody's together. Make sure you encourage folks. There are no stupid questions, man. Ask. Just ask. The right. odds are somebody else has got the same question, too. And, and it's going to be a lot easier for everybody, even if you feel like, oh, my God, I'm stupid for asking that question, right? Just get it on the table. Ask it because the odds are great. Somebody else wanted to know the answer, too. And even if that wasn't the case, now you know the answer and let's all move on. We all know the same answer now. Let's get moving. Awesome. All right. Awesome. We got, some, we got lots of questions coming, which is good. Um, what does the future hold? Give me a second here. Just kind of scroll through. Uh, what are your thoughts about CISO reporting to board versus to C- CIO or others? Yep. So it is a new trend in the industry for sure, and a relatively new trend. It's, it started probably four or five years ago, and it seems to be gathering momentum still. So I'll still say it's a new trend. Um, the CISO who reports into the CIO is is still, I think, the majority scenario. If you go out and poll everybody, who do you report to? I think it's still CIO is the largest one, but that's a shrinking number. We're seeing some interesting changes. I'm seeing CISOs reporting into legal. I'm seeing them report into risk. 
I'm seeing them report into CFO. I'm seeing them report straight to the CEO and in some cases straight to the board. Okay. Straight to the board, honestly, to me, is the one that makes the most sense in a mature organization with a mature board. And that's two disclaimers there. Mature org, mature board. You got both of those and a mature CISO coming into the role, reporting straight to the board makes a lot of sense, a lot right. of sense. Because you've got a, a security audit committee in that board who's overseeing all of those risks for the company. And now the CISO is reporting directly to them. CEO and everybody else knows they have to be held accountable. It, it's a good model and it works, but it's still very much the minority model at this point. Uh, what does the future hold for traditional password managers once the, the world starts implementing passwordless tech? Yeah, so once passwordless hits, I think password managers uh, go to the wayside just like um, some of the other technologies around passwords go to the wayside, right? I mean, privilege access management becomes a very different thing once passwordless exists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tokens and, and other things that are complements to password become the focal point instead of the complement. There's there's an awful lot of changes, right? And and it's it's a long journey, though. I mean, as much as we all love the idea and want to see it happen, you know, I, I'm remembering back to 10 years ago when we all wanted to see complex passwords, right? Like, no longer can we get away with eight characters, you know, or six characters or four characters. It's got to be at least eight, you know, whatever the rule was. And no longer can it be super simple. It's got to be complex. And, and, and we all looked at that and saw that and saw that it was good. And then we started running around our shops and discovered, oh, yeah, this legacy piece of gear here won't allow complex characters in the passwords. This one here won't allow a password longer than eight characters. This one here won't allow this, won't allow that, won't allow the other. And whatever innovation and revolution we have with regards to passwords, the thing to always remember is there's going to be some amount of stuff in our environment that won't support the new thing. So even as we all embrace passwordless, we won't all be all embracing passwordless. There's going to be moments in, in everybody's lives where that's not feasible. And so some of these other technologies are going to be around for a long time. Right. And there's, you know, archaic software, archaic solutions that have maybe, you know, older technologies, older softwares that can't be updated, can't be patched. Right. And then they're the, the key foundation for some sort of application or business process that that yep. companies hasn't updated, but they need that. And I've seen that. I'm sure you have where it's like, you know, it's a windows point 3.1 box where you're like, they just need to update kind of scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even even look at uh, look at you know whatever password. I, I gave a ten year old example of password length and password complexity not being viable in some scenarios. Look at today with MFA and two FA not viable in some scenarios. Look at biometric not viable in most scenarios. Look at passwordless. You know, it, it's with each new revolution, evolution, whatever you want to call it. There's there's always blockers. Right. Awesome. Uh, so coming from the technical side. Uh, we're moving to the business side. Uh, how how would one learn how to become more conscious with their reports and presentations? That's a really good question. That's a great question. Um, I got there by way of luck, by reporting into bosses who happen to be really, really good at, at presenting. Um, I had a couple of bosses in a row who really excelled in that area, and I recognized they were better at it than I was, and I basically threw myself at their mercy and was like, teach me, oh, great one. And um, I learned. I learned some really good presentation skills from a couple of bosses in a row. And I then got to a point where I felt like my chops were good enough that I could I could consider myself to be good at the game and still have learned from all sorts of people as I progressed. I had a boss that I didn't get along with very well, um, had a lot of issues with, uh, but that boss was really good at presentations. Uh, and I still learn from that person here and there in these moments. Um, 
you can learn from anybody. You can learn from your own team, right? Don't don't always be looking up to learn either. Remember my up, out, and down. You can learn from out. You can learn from down. I've had people who reported to me who walked in the door and slapped a graphic in front of me that I was like, my God, I could have used this 20 years ago in my career. You're a genius. I'm stealing this. Um, right. Every presentation can improve. Right. Uh, what about Toastmasters? I have never done Toastmasters. I probably should, quite frankly. Given the whole public speaking thing that I went through, my journey there, Toastmasters would be a nice conclusion for that. So if you guys and talk to BSEC, if you're looking at presentation skills and depending on where we are, Toastmasters, improv. A lot yep. of people that I've known that had kind of a, a fear of presentation or speaking or even being, you know, you know, good dynamic on your feet. Improv is really good to do that because a lot of this, the practice sessions, the technology and the things that they use is being dynamic in a conversation, right? Yep. And a lot of times yep. when you're in, in a presentation, and I'm going to talk on a sales side, right? Sometimes you have 40 slides, right? And you have 30 slides. You don't ne necessarily have to go through all of them, right? right if right. people understand it and there's only five slides they need to know, that might be your presentation for today, right? Yeah. Being yeah. able to be dynamic and or go through them. Yeah, you know that you know the first five. You got the first three, the other three, okay? So we're just going to go through this, this, and this. Guys, have any questions? We're good to go, right? Yep. You might have to be that word. I've been in presentations where the guy's going through each and every slide and he's not reading the room, and, right? Yep. And he's reading every word from every slide. Uh, and as you see here on this bullet of incredibly tiny fronts, blah, blah, <laughs> blah, 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 followed by this other bullet of blah, 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 blah. And, yeah, and you, you start seeing this, people head down right? in right? the fronts. Yeah, the idea is to always have something up in front of you on the screen that is a hint, an indicator of the real presentation, but not the meat of it where they're forced to pay attention to you. Um, right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of tips and tricks. And yeah, I can see where improv totally helps. Um, podcasting is, is another good one, too. I'm so much better on my feet now after two and a half years of podcasting than I used to be. Yeah, just getting, and getting out there. So yeah, uh, great, great feedback. Um, how does that match up? Teams are smaller than, than managers would like. But these, uh, but there's people laid off due to the pandemic. That seems uh, mutually exclusive. Yeah, it's it's the lovely. I call it the cyber conundrum. Uh, every day the managers are complaining they don't have enough talent, and every day there's talent complaining they don't have jobs. Um, and we've got this massive shortage supposedly in our industry of talent as well. And yet here we are with all these people looking for work in cyber. So something doesn't add up. And uh, I mentioned before the Breaking into Cybersecurity podcast, friends of mine run. It's a fantastic resource. One of the things they cover, and uh, Naomi Buckwalter is another name I should throw out there. Follow her on LinkedIn. There's a whole movement about breaking people in and encouraging things like attitude and aptitude and not worrying so much about whether they have the specific knowledge and skill sets already. Do they have the capabilities, the attitude, and the aptitude? Are you the sort of person who, who wants to find out root cause and is willing to take the thing apart to find out the thing that caused the thing? Are you the sort of person who can logically organize thoughts and relate them to one another in a lateral way? Are you the kind of person who, you know, I, I'm describing characteristics, not knowledge. And if you have enough of these characteristics, you're totally qualified for a cyber job, and we should bring you in and teach you the knowledge, and then you're going to be devastatingly effective. Mm -hmm. um, there's a movement afoot to, to address the problem with exactly that solution, and I practice it. I'm one of the ones who is always trying to bring in new new folks that, that may not have the chops. Uh, I mentioned my two new hires. One of them came to me saying, I've got minimal cyber experience. The other one said, I'm just now learning. I'm getting started. I was like, fine. You guys have got the attitude and the aptitude. Come on over. We'll figure out the rest together. Um, but I'm I'm unique in that regard. There's not there's not all of us managers operating that way. So, right. 
And I think that's one thing that if you guys are breaking the industry is putting yourself out there daily, right? Networking, connecting with the right people, socializing online through LinkedIn, you know, putting out content, doing all that and just keep getting out there. Now, before the pandemic, you'd go to events, you'd go to conferences, you just, you know, shake hands and meet as many people as you can. Well, now through the digital age, go to meetups, you know, go to online streams and things that are happening, you know, communities like Discord and just network, network, network. There's always someone that says, oh, by the way, I know a guy that knows a guy that's potentially hiring. Right, right. Yeah, I would, uh, I would argue that, uh, you know, the last, I don't know, 70 or 80% of the last 10 jobs I've had were because of networking, not because of submitting a resume off the street. Right. No, totally makes sense. Uh, what qualities do you most, uh, what qualities do you, your most successful hires share? Oh, that's a great question. Um, self-drive, self-awareness, uh, desire to learn, and ability to think outside of the box. Okay. Perfect. Uh, how do you retain uh, quality talent? That's an art form in its own right. That's a whole subject for a whole other show. Like we could do a whole show just on that one question. How do you retain top talent? Um, I've already described some of my methods in terms of uh, supporting them, um, training, certifications, these kinds of things, giving them that. I've, I've talked about letting them peer with each other and putting them in situations where I challenge them and get them to exceed and excel and go beyond their current skill sets. Uh, we've talked about several different other examples of, of how I manage my teams here. One thing that I'll say that I add on top of all of that is this. Um, I believe in total transparency with my teams. I am as absolutely transparent a boss as I can possibly be. Every rare now and again at the C-suite, you're basically ordered to shut up. I will shut up when I'm ordered to shut up, but I will otherwise share far more than a lot of managers uh, share at, at my level with their teams. Um, I expect the same in return. And I'll give you an idea of a, an example here of some really good radical transparency. I had an employee who went through with this exercise I do with every employee on my team. Where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in one year? Let's have these conversations about what you think your growth looks like. Like, are you wanting to manage eventually? Are you wanting to become the best tech on the team? Uh, you know, what are your dreams and what are your, and what are your thoughts? And any answer is allowed. Any answer is allowed. And this particular employee, his answer was, I want to run my own consultancy one day. Oh, so you want to run it You want to run a business. So not only do you need to learn the material that we're doing here today to be good at it, good enough that you can be a consultant and sell that service. You need to learn how to run a small business. You need to learn how to sell. You need to learn how to be good in front of people. You got a whole bunch of skills you're going to need. So let's work together and I'll start giving you those skills. And I proceeded to spend the next several years with this employee, helping him achieve his goal. I invested in my employee, knowing that his goal was going to be ultimately leaving me, leaving my team, leaving my company, leaving my organization. Didn't matter to me. He had a goal. He had a skill set. Any of the skills I helped teach him to get towards that goal were beneficial at that time to my organization as well. I'm going to invest. I'm going to help him. I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what I did. And eventually he did leave. Um, but during that time that he was with us, he was one of the hardest working, best and most focused employees I had because he knew I 100% had his back and I knew he 100% had mine. Well, wow, that's awesome. Now you're you're recommending Naomi Butler. Is that Naomi Buckwalter? B U C K W A L T E R. Give me a second here. B U C K. Uh, w A L T E R. Buckwalter. And her and Chris Fulon here. I'll put them, I'll put them all three in the private chat here, and you can paste them out. Yeah, because I think we got um, Renee Small and, and Christopher Fallon. Chris Fulon, yeah, F-O-U-L-O-N and Renee Small. Yes, yeah, so we shared out those, that. 
Those right. three right there are probably the single strongest driving force of breaking into cybersecurity of anybody on planet Earth. I, I love all three of them. They're great human beings. They are focused on breaking into cyber. They're focused on helping people do exactly that. And they've got a million tips and tricks. And, and again, I'm so much further along in my career that I've, I've <laughs> my memories of the breaking in days are very old and rusty. Um, so I highly recommend working with those three. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we'll share that out to the follow, community. Yeah, so. follow them on LinkedIn, follow their podcast, all that good stuff. Awesome. Um, what is your leadership style? What is my leadership style? I think I've described a lot of it already. Um, transparency, I'm a big believer in. Uh, supporting my team and backing them and letting them know 100% I have their back. That's a huge thing to me. If I ever had any member of any team of mine feeling like I didn't have their back, I'd feel like I utterly failed as a leader. That's probably the number one for me. Um, number two for me is believing in them furiously, uh, even when they don't believe in themselves. Nice. Okay, perfect. Uh, how do you cultivate diversity and inclusion as a CISO in your company? Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Great question. I'm a huge advocate of diversity. And um, one of my, again, we could do a whole show on it. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, my diversity rant is as follows. Uh, we all think about and talk about diversity these days in terms of gender, ethnicity, and these kinds of things. To me, diversity is a far bigger story than that and needs to be embraced utterly and, and completely all over the whole map. And by that, I mean, yes, race, yes, gender, yes, ethnicity, yes, religion, yes, atheism, whatever, you know, wherever you fall on the religious spectrum, whatever it might be, all of that. But I also mean grew up in the military versus went to college. I mean, went to Ivy League versus went to uh, uh community college. I mean, grew up in the country. I mean, grew up in the city. I mean, grew up in a family with 12 kids, grew up in a family where I was the only kid. I want to see as many diverse backgrounds, experiences, capabilities, possibilities, and worldviews as I can possibly cram into a team. And wow. I believe that the team is as strong as it can humanly be when you do that. I love nothing more than interviewing somebody that I realize this person's not like me at all. I get excited when I find I'm interviewing somebody who's not like me at all. It's like, oh, cool. Something new and different is going to happen if this person joins the team. And I'm thrilled by that. And I think that most leaders um, fall into the trap of, we, we use different key, key phrases and code phrases, right? Not a good cultural fit. Um, that's oftentimes a code phrase for wasn't like me, the hiring manager, right? Um, you've got to be self-aware. You've got to uh, absolutely be aware of where you're limits are and, and where your beliefs are and where your walls are and where your obstacles are. And to be able to look at somebody else who's coming from a completely, completely different perspective and a completely different worldview is going to have a completely different set of all of the above, the obstacles and the walls and the self-awareness and all these different things. You have to have that to be successful as a team. You have to. And so it's, it's vitally important to me to hire and, and run folks through the process and, and to very deliberately check myself and challenge myself to not just hire someone like me. Well, we got a funny comment. It says, can I be the first vegan on your team? Yes, we'll take a <laughs> vegan. Absolutely. I don't think I have any vegans right now. Do it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we've got some questions still. Uh, what, you, what you consider that are the best resources? So I guess we're talking about for the self-learning. I think this, this question came from when we were talking about the, you've been laid off for six months. What do you do? Um, I'll go ahead and name some names. Cybrary is a really good one. Um, they've got free stuff. I mentioned the free CISSP trainings and those kinds of things. You can go to those guys. I believe it's MIT has made all of their coursework available for free online um, right. for their, uh, some of their programs. I don't know if it's every program yet, but, but there's a chunk. Of, and then they're not the only school that's done this. Go dig. There's tons of free curriculum out there. Uh, get free training from Cybrary. 
Um, there's some other resources that I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but that'd probably be my big two right there. I would say first, and to add on to that, Google it, right? Just yeah. search YouTube. Yeah. There's lots of YouTube videos, lots of resources. I think there's 72 hours for every, every minute of uh, videos that's posted, about 72 hours of content, right? So you think about that, how many people are posting out pen testing, mm -hmm. CISSP mm -hmm. stuff, you know, security things. Just Google it. I'm sure there's tons of resources now. There's different programs, sponsorships, uh, scholarships too. I know INE has one. You know, there's different ones that have scholarships. So just look, right? There's yep. enough information. Safari Books Online, I think is like 30, 40 bucks where it's a database of now videos yep. as well as books that you can get access to. So there's so many resources out there that you like I think it was uh, Goodwill Hunting. You know, with a with a, a library card, you could get a university degree. Well, right, right. You can do that now, right? With the amount of information that's online. Absolutely. Uh, how do you deal with securities? Uh, with securities perceived inherent and impotent in driving new development, revenue growth with product teams and managing the internal communication and relationships. Oh wow! So that's you, you just described. Basically, what you're saying is, how do you be a successful CISO? That's what you're asking. There you go. Um, uh, that again, we could do a whole show just on that one question. We could absolutely do a show on that question. Uh, at a high level, I would have to say, I mentioned before, use business terms and, and address what you do in business terms. So start with that. The next thing is everywhere you can run around and learn from your business peers what the heck they're up to. Know what the business's objectives and mission and, and, and value statements are, right? Know those things. Ask questions of your peers and all the other departments. How are you, what is your group doing to fulfill said mission, said values, said whatever it might be? And start to craft scenarios, quick wins if you can, that help support their ability to fulfill the, the, uh, the business objectives while also getting some security slid in there for free. A great example, one of my go-to scenarios that I love to do is um, getting biometrics or 2FA or token-based kind of logins and stuff set up. Getting SSO set up is another great one. Imagine that you've got a marketing department that's got 14 different apps and everybody has to log into the 14 different apps every day, all day, and they all get annoyed by that. And you come in and say, it's more secure to do SSO with MFA. And not only that, I'll speed you up and make you more effective in your day. You won't have to log into 14 things. You just click once and you're in. And all of a sudden, they love you for having improved their business efficiency. And at the same time, you've, you've also implemented some security. So always try to get the twofer where you can, where you're giving some security, but you're also benefiting somebody. If you can um, be in a B2B type company, obviously, versus B2C, it's a much bigger story there. It's a lot easier to do, I should say. Um, any product that any business makes, somebody's going to want to know how secure is it? Any process that any business offers, they're going to want to know, what are you doing with my data? If you can, as the security lead, be out there in front and meeting with customers and clients and coordinating with sales and marketing and showing how the security you're giving the company is actually affecting clients and customers, then you've got a leg up there. And once again, you've, you've got a twofer. You're, you're getting more security, but you're also associating it with a business objective and a business driver. Keep doing that over and over and over again. Keep speaking business language. Keep talking in terms of risk. Eventually, you'll win their hearts and minds, and you'll you'll be there. Well, I'm just trying to think of the stuff like because for me, I, like my day to day is trying to learn that constantly. Because I, as a sales executive, you're having those conversations with the C level and learning about the the business development, the strategies of the business, the risks on the business, right? Because you're you're not talking about product. A lot of the right. times that those conversations product doesn't doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter if it's Checkpoint, Cisco, Palo Alto, Fortinet, they don't care what name it is, right? Yep. Does it help the business? Does it reduce the risk? Does it help yep. you know, to eliminate any potential loss or revenue and exposure? Yep. Like having those conversations. So I think this is very powerful to hear from a CISO like yourself, how a CISO thinks. Yep. The, the first question you should be asking every CISO you're selling to is what are your business objectives? That should be right. the first thing you know and learn. What are your business objectives? Um, I've got a buddy who's, um, uh, he's over at a clothing manufacturing company. He's a deputy CISO at a clothing manufacturing company. And his, his running joke is whenever he meets with any vendor trying to sell him anything, the first question he asks him is, how can you help me sell more jeans? Right. That's it. That's what I want to know. How are you going to help me sell more jeans? And, and they come in with this full security story all ready to go. And he's like, no, I'm not. How are you going to help me sell jeans? Right. And they don't expect that question at the CISO, but that's a CISO who is business aligned. Right. For sure. Now, Alan, what's the best way people can get a hold of you? Like we have in the in the chat, if you, uh, Matt Frazier, if you can put it up there, uh, exclamation guest. We have all your socials. I know you were talking about a podcast you do. Yep. So, all right, start with LinkedIn. Hit me up on LinkedIn and feel free to connect. Um, you've and you've you've you said you've listed my LinkedIn link there. Yep. Okay. So feel free to hit me up there. That's always kind of my foundation starting place. Um, I've got I don't know a ton of followers on LinkedIn. I tend to post original content. Ideally, once a week, usually Monday morning, I get something out the door that's original and new and, and you know, just getting conversations started. I'm very much about getting other people involved and getting a conversation going rather than just blathering my stuff into the universe. I, I, I ask lots of questions and try to get engagement and get folks talking to each other. And that's kind of my style. Start there. Uh, the podcast is called the Cyber Ranch Podcast. Um, it's a brand new one. It's only a few months old now. I, I was with another show formerly and left it and went out on my own, basically. Uh, the Cyber Ranch podcast is available at HackerValley.com. Hacker Valley Studio is who I'm partnered with. Um, and um, what else? Let's see here. It's also available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, you know, you What's name it. What's the podcast it. called? The Cyber Ranch. I'll type it up here. And it's uh, it's playing up on my, uh, my Texas heritage, as you guys can probably tell from the flag behind me, the gate behind me. I'm a Texan. Um, so I decided to name my new show, the cyber ranch. I, I, I'm generally known to be running around conferences in a cowboy hat. Uh, didn't happen <laughs> to be wearing it now cause I'm wearing headphones. In fact, I'm, I'm surprised somebody didn't ask, where's the hat? I, I, I wear it that often. Um, but the cyber ranch, that's the, that's the general theme is a bit of a Texas flavor on a cyber podcast, but I interview CISOs and other practitioners. And I've even interviewed uh, high level sales executives and all kinds of just different folks, lateral to and adjunct to. And the whole idea is folks who have expertise in a particular area of cyber. We do a deep dive one topic per show and get into it. Awesome. Now, just to let you guys know, we're, we're going to get, I'm going to get Nat Frazier to share out the, the link for that. So you guys can look and check it out. All the links for today's shows, everything we've talked about, it's actually been sent out as well. So you guys should have that. Uh, we have a vote going on right now. Uh, exclamation vote. Make sure you guys vote. Uh, let me know what you guys think of this podcast, this stream, uh, this stream today. Any last thoughts, Alan? Um, I think that's all I've got for today. <laughs> we did cover a lot. We did. So, I mean, this has been great. Alan, I want to first, you know, for me personally, I want to thank you. I've learned a lot from the, uh, today's uh, stream and just, you know, how a CISO, uh, CTO, CIO really kind of thinks, right? And, and just really can understand how it's so important to have that mindset, right? And being in these roles, especially when we're going through a pandemic, we're going through this kind of issue. I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not... 
it's not alien. It's something I evolved into, right? Once upon a time, I used to look at the C-suite and think, who are these strange people that live and work in a different world than I do and speak a different language than I do? And now I'm one of them. Um, so you can get there. You can do it. You can cross that divide. And um, my advice to anybody, whether you're getting started or, or, or heading to the CISO role or whatever, is just, you know, never be afraid to learn. Never be afraid to admit when you don't know a thing and just embrace bettering yourself every opportunity you can and, and you know. The rest will make the rest will take care of itself. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put you in the lobby. Uh, just hold out there. Uh, we're just going to finish off the podcast. But Alan, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I learned a lot. Hopefully, the the community learned a lot. We're just doing a poll right now. Uh, but yeah, it was so so much value to to hear from a CISO like yourself. Really, kind of share your knowledge and expertise. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It was great to be here. So, guys, you know that was a great stream. I hope you guys learned a lot. Again, we had a poll going on right now uh, just to see the information that you guys, you know, learn, be able to see if you got some value out of that. Hopefully you did give you a little bit of insight on the actual executive level. I know a lot of times we're talking about pen testing and technology and, and things along that line. Now to give you kind of that other perception of the top down approach, how they think this way. So I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank Net Frazier, the cyber and security community. Thank you for, you know, being here. Uh, don't forget, just to let you guys know that we got a lot going on in the community. So make sure you join Discord. Make sure that you're here to kind of communicate and, and share with all the community to learn about your cybersecurity career. No matter where you are, if you're breaking in the industry or if you're, you're moving up to the senior level, make sure you share that. Make sure you communicate. So I just want to finish off. Don't forget, software is hackable. Being connected is vulnerable. I'll see you next Daily Cyber.